Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another exciting foray into the 982 universe of the Marvel Multiverse. We are here to talk about MC2. That makes me Nico, and you guys can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I must be TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. So there's something really funny about where we are in this series, and it's something that I think happens when you spend enough time on a topic or with something. Like, I remember my first days working on a roller coaster in a theme park and everything you did you were like is this the time that someone's testing is this and so like you're really nervous and then you realize one day that you're just like hold dispatch and like you get really comfortable with things that feel like life or death right and that's sort of how i feel about the mc2 universe <laughs> i feel like now that i finished a next and j2 that where we're sitting with spider girl and taking on yeah fantastic five but wild thing i'm pretty excited i am excited too change is always good we lost a lot of steam in those six issues of a next and six issues of j2 and jumping into something else right now i think is is healthy yeah and it's funny because like now i'm starting to feel like oh this is the mc2 universe i know what i'm gonna get i'm gonna get weird amounts of testosterone shifting males with a lot of like sarcastically dramatic characters lurking in the shadows and we're gonna get a lot of really sort of stated but not shown woman power and there's going to be complex narratives about how the previous generation you know so we're talking a lot in today's media about generational damage and i think what we need to start talking about in terms of mc2 is the damaged generation which is all of your favorite marvel heroes have somehow been destroyed horribly almost for no reason irrecoverably sometimes kind of silly it's great yeah i mean you can send that thing out to best buy all you want but the geek squad is never going to be able to find the spider-man buried inside of this adult peter parker and i am like strangely becoming more and more invested with every issue and i think part of that is because one of the things that happens right away once you know sadly tom and crew lose their beloved first wave of titles is there is sort of a purging of innocence that occurs in these books and i mean it lovingly i don't mean it like maybe the slightly sinister it presents with but there is a much more look we're going to tell the fucking story we're going to tell we're not going to stretch for time which almost makes me feel like they wind up panicking for things to do at some points but i really enjoy how much more balls to the wall things get right away As far as Spider-Girl goes, we hit a really good stride in Volume 3. Wild Thing, I have a lot to say on and we will get to it. I do think, I just want to say right now, I think it's great. I love her as a character. The way people talk about Mayday Parker, I would talk about Rena if she somehow showed up and now I'm starting to write my pitch to Marvel about how to get her into the 616. Fantastic Five happened to me. 
I completely agree with both of those things. Like if Marvel was like, yo, you want to write Exiles? I would be like, yes, I would like Wild Thing and Ruby Summers. And that would be my team up right there. I would write that all fucking day. I'm obsessed with that. Yeah. Wild Thing is an amazing character. Rena is somehow a really well thought synthesis of Elektra and Wolverine. Sometimes I don't love the situations they put her in because she comes off with a little bit of like Jubilee syndrome at times. But who Wild Thing is, who Rena is is really interesting. I would have loved to have gotten more about her relationship with her half-brother Saberclaw. I love the nature of her relationship with her dad. The excitement she has to walk in the X-Men's footsteps while still being her own woman is really compelling. Her look is cool. Like, this is an exciting take on a character. Could not agree more. The idea that Wolverine and Elektra would end up together is weirdly plausible to me, like less so in the 616 now, but I can kind of see it for back then. Elektra, unfortunately, does suffer a little bit. Not totally. She has a few great moments, but Nico and I have been talking about Elektra a lot on our other podcast, X is for Podcast, and she's having this renaissance right now. So to see her the way we have been seeing her uh, as compared to her in MC2 is a slight disappointment, but the thing about it is the soul of the great Electra that we love is definitely in Rena the same way that the Logan that we love is in there too. That's an amazing character. And for what they've got and the fact that it's only six issues, they do a lot with her. They do. They really left a lasting mark on me so much so that I have for my entire adult life waited for my chance to be like, all right, son of Logan, psychic claws, I'm going to do it. And like, it has been a huge influence on me because it took something that I love loved that because in some ways Wolverine is so wrapped up in this overly masculine identity. You know, when I think about covers, famous covers of Wolverine, I think about, of course, the Come Get It Frank Miller cover. I think about the Frank Miller, him in the tussle from the original printing of the Wolverine trade paperback one through four. You know, I think about those images from my childhood and how masculine they were and what a you know little queer bee I was and how I was looking to J2 as a chance to transform into something bigger and better and there were many ways in which Rena allowed me a formatively queer take on a young Wolverine that yes she was a woman but she felt much more accessible to me as somebody who really needed that and I just could not have realized what a profound impact Larry Hama's Rena had has had on me it's really unbelievable to revisit this and see what I thought J2 was this whole time is really Rena yeah I didn't have the same experience but I see it a lot. I also love this depiction of Wolverine as a father because we see Wolverine a lot lately as the reluctant but still somehow very good father of Deken and Scout and X-23 slash Wolverine. That storyline is really growing on me. I like it a lot, but it does come with a lot of I'm not a good dad, but I'm showing up for you. I'd kill for you, but I'm terrible at this. And Logan as a father to Rena is a pretty just standard good dad who is Wolverine. And that's kind of a great take in contrast to the one we see now. And kind of in contrast to what we get with Peter in Spider-Girl, not that I think Spider-Girl doesn't present Peter as a great dad, but it does sort of present him as chronically impotent in a golf shirt. And I find that to be a really weird way to celebrate the most notable coming-of-age hero of any generation. It's just a weird way to say, oh, this is adulthood. Like, oh, wow. And Peter Parker settles into awkward mediocrity. That's what it is. He's not a bad dad, but he is 
is not a great dad. And he had such a fucking amazing mom to learn from in Aunt May. She is like the pinnacle superhero parent for so many readers. Now, I'm sure there's textual levels with deeper understanding of the 5,000 issues that have bared Spider-Man's name and webbed eyes. But, you know, for the most part, I think Aunt May is cultural exchange for good superhero mom that always does the right thing by her kid. And so to see Peter not able to achieve that maybe feels like it's unfair to the legacy of May Parker. Yeah, I think that's kind of a perfect synthesis of everything that we've seen from Peter Parker before this. What we're seeing of Peter Parker now even in the 616 and contrasting it with this person who is just it, it would be interesting if we were delving into it as like you know what made Peter like this and how can he get better but it's not that this is Peter he's not going to change he's changing his mind slightly on the spider girl thing but he's not giving her a great power comes great responsibility speech and the fact of the matter is in a lot of ways being an adult in comparison to a kid is having great power and he is not using the power that he has to help his daughter use the power that she has and that that's the real disappointment. I think that is such a terrific interpretation of that. And I think that's one of the reasons that when we're going to get into it, Fantastic Five fails colossally for me from day one. You know, this is a really weird showing of Reed. This is a really weird showing of everybody on the team where Rena feels like she elevates the idea of a young Wolverine and Spider-Girl feels like she evolves the idea of a young Spider-Man. Fantastic Five feels like de-evolving the idea of the world's greatest comic family and instead making it a strange assemblage of tropes and references that never gels together for five issues. Yeah, it's exactly that. I really thought what we would be getting with this is a new take on family updated for a modern context. And it isn't that. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it thinks it is, what it's supposed to be, but it's a jumbled mess and it really doesn't have anything to do with family. And with five of them, they could have each gotten a fucking issue, and instead, no one really gets any characterization throughout five issues. Yep. Well, that means we're here to talk about, properly speaking, Spider-Girl Volume 3, Avenging Allies, which first saw print in digest form in April. Hey, April 13th, 2005. That's like, you know, pretty around now when we're recording this. That's pretty fun. It's also got Spider-Girl Presents Wild Things Volume 1, Crash Course, which originally saw publication in digest form, December 5th, 2007, and Spider-Girl Presents Fantastic Five Volume 1 in Search of Doom, September 20th, 2007. This is going to encompass Spider-Girl 12 through 16, as well as its annual, and the whole runs of both Wild Things 0 through 5 and Fantastic Five 1 through 5. Now, these issues predominantly saw publication between September of 99 and February of 2000. However, it's of note that Wild Thing number 0 was originally solicited in Wizard magazine, which was a comics publication. So this sounds so weird that I have to be like, in case you don't know what Wizard Magazine is to me, that's like being like, so let me tell you about TV Guide. But so Wizard Magazine was this thing that was like the actual entirety of the internet about comics printed once a month. And it made all of the rumors that became famous rumors, famous rumors. It is the thing that promoted the books that became the top sellers. Wizard Magazine was sort of a cultural exchange by which comic fans 
Cons could meet and mediate topics when cons weren't yet what they are now, and the internet certainly didn't exist in this form. Now, TK, did you have any relationship with Wizard? Of course, I bought it every month. Same. <laughs> like, you had to buy the cover you wanted, right. especially when there were multiple covers, and one was like DC and one was Marvel. Yep. So you ordered that in January of 99, and it did eventually come sometime around September or October of 99, but technically the original date soliciting it was January of 99. Now, these are going to be written by Tom DeFalco with a couple of slight exceptions. Ron Friends contributed the plot to Spider-Girl Annual 1's A Story, as well as a number of editorial assistants filling in on some of the back matter for the annual. Larry Hama is responsible for the A Story on Wild Things 1 through 5. Pat Oleaf does the majority of the pencils on Spider-Girl with a little bit of help from Ron Friends, who will guest spot over on Wild Thing Zero before Ron Lim takes his penciling duties, and then Fantastic Five sees pencils from Paul Ryan throughout. Inks from the whole team, as always, we've got Al Williamson, Al Milgram, Paul Ryan. Now we also can add Sal Buscema, that's always pretty exciting, big famous name. On colors, we have Christy Scheel, Bob Sharon, Tom Smith, and Al Milgram, before Janice Chiang, John Morelli, and Jim Novak, with help from Dave Sharp on one issue of Fantastic Five, finish out the letters chores. Whew, man, so many people making so little art somehow. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just the, a lot of the same names over and over again. Now, I of course don't have any real sales data on Wild Thing Zero, but some notable numbers. Spider-Girl number 12 kicks off this run with 42,000 copies sold, while Spider-Girl 16 closes out the run with 37,000 copies. Of note, the Spider-Girl annual dips down to just about 34,600 copies, which not unusual for an annual. While Wild Thing number one debuted at a higher number than Spider-Girl came in at that month, Wild Thing number one coming in at 47,000 copies, she would ultimately finish out her run at just over 25,000, while Fantastic Five never quite hit those numbers, started at 45,000, and ends at 27,000. So it kind of sounds like more people hung in for the end of Fantastic Five than Wild Thing, which is bizarre to me. Absolutely insane. So, all right, you know, all of the house cleaning out of the way, everything that we need to get done, done. The thing that I want to start this whole thing off with was I felt like Volume 3 of Spider-Girl was the first time this was a book about a specific hero who was her own person, not trying to ride the coattails of another hero. Yeah, she's starting to sink into her own. It feels like we're not doing so much Monster of the Week. The other characters are also starting to gel. This is becoming an ongoing. And I think that one of the things that helps make this an ongoing right away is knowing that this is issue 12, I feel like a year of storytelling does kind of have something to it. When I hear, wow, a year of stories, okay, she kind of hung in. You know, when a book's canceled at three or four issues, oh, okay, whatever. But Spider-Girl already has 12 issues, a zero. The annual's coming up next. By this point, one half was solicited. She's outlasted the other titles. I think there's something about her plucky refusing to die this early on that kind of just makes me root for her a little bit more than I did last month. Yeah, there's that. There's also we've got Peter more on board for things. So that really kind of eye rolly plot line that was constantly nagging at the back of all the stories is done. We're, we've turned a corner with Jimmy Yama and Moose. Things are just generally in a better place. Except for Phil, man. <laughs> That's like the hard part for 
for me about Peter being the good guy right away. That's why, you know, when we were saying that, I felt like we went from let's bide our time to who knows how long we have. Let's just start telling all of our stories. I feel like they were like, okay, well, Phil's going to have to train her because who knows how fucking long we have as a title. So Phil, start training her. And then all of a sudden it's like, nah, Peter's got it. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. Fuck. All right. Well, Phil, you can go train Lady Hawk, I guess, if she shows back up or she's show back up. I don't know how to pluralize one plural person. Ladies Hawk? Yeah, okay. So Phil can come around and train the Ladies Hawk. But there is just something so weird about how redundant this makes Phil feel right away. Yeah, and that they don't do anything fun with it, like get a lair, a place to train, and like they both do it. And it is just kind of awkward. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that I feel like Spider-Girl really was a process of learning as they went, even though this is a tried and true team who have worked in alternate universes before. Like we discussed, these guys worked on the new universe more than a decade earlier. So they already have launching a comic line under their belt a bit. So it's not like they've never done this before, but one of the things that they, I think, never had to struggle with before were the preconceived notions of how Spider-Man and what that symbol on the cover should mean. So I wonder if that's part of why the very outdated high drama Riverdale kind of high school stuff feels so... Other than the Moose and Jimmy stuff, which is getting weirder and gayer. Like, now that it's like, oh, that's my girlfriend, Mayday, it's gayer than ever. Yeah, I don't even really know how to describe it at this point. It was, it was at least simple when it was just Moose versus Jimmy and they won't stop. And it is so much of it in every issue and it's so intense that it is the gayest thing that you've seen in your life. Now they're pulling in like Courtney. Jimmy's even more obsessed with May. I don't, it's just chaos. And that chaos. Chaos isn't really giving me any insight into these characters. No. I'm enjoying it because it is like one of those amazing Japanese game shows that makes its way onto YouTube. But uh, other than the fact that I think somebody just picked the chicken, so they're going to get hit with a wrecking ball and fall off the giant cardboard castle, I don't think I really understand. Oh, and they <laughs> added another dude. On. Oh, yeah. No, you mean other Brad? I don't know what's going on there. Other Brad, why are you here? Who are you? Why are you here? Why are you fighting Jimmy? What's going on? I, I got nothing. But, you know, speaking of I got nothing and why are you here, the Dark Devil pages in this issue feel a little bit like footnotes. I really do think Dark Devil is one of the most compelling parts of this universe. But one of the things that I think it needs to keep doing is using him sparingly because the minute I get tired of Dark Devil. There goes your most compelling, interesting vigilante type because, you know, popping in Nova doesn't do a whole lot for me. No. So I find the other part of this that needs to be addressed a little frustrating. Here we get all of the Kane stuff start to come up. And the problem with the Kane stuff is exactly what you've said since day one. If the continuity doesn't matter, then you can't expect me to know who all of these people are. But if the continuity matters, then don't try to sell this to me as something new. Don't say, oh, it's 10 years later, so you don't need to know anything. But like, you ultimately need to know everything. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can explain it all in the book if you want. You better do it really well and account for the page time that that's going to take. And you better account for the fact that explaining something like that is not going to make me care in the same way that it would if I had the background, if I was a huge Spider-Man fan and came over to this because it was an alternate version of Spider-Man when I saw Kane 
Kane, I would be like, oh my God, it's their interpretation Kane. It's 10 years later, as happened in the Ultimates a lot. With this, if you are trying to say to people, this is an easy pickup and read, then who the fuck cares who Kane is? And even if you do the whole like, Peter's like, oh, I don't say that name. Don't don't ask me about him. That's not enough. And that's I don't think that's the way to do this. Because one of the things that I find myself wondering about is how many classic characters are going to become the main characters here. You know, you're bringing in Kane. That's not Dark Devil who like, oh, how is this Daredevil or is it even Daredevil? It's Kane. That's literally the same guy. And now you're bringing in J. Jonah Jameson looking like he just walked off the fucking set of Evening Shade or something. And I have no idea what to do with the goddamn NBC Saturday Night block that this is. Him walking in in the gray and yellow tracksuit looking like Bumblebee living in the retirement village. Get out. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's obviously a big part of it is it just is years later, so he has to age. But unfortunately, Pat Olive's art on this, this is the way his face is drawn. I'm very worried that this man has escaped from the retirement home and needs to be brought back. Yes, he is drawn very... I mean, I guess that's kind of the thing about J. Jonah Jameson in general, isn't it? If J. Jonah Jameson were an older gentleman, we would be concerned he has dementia. But because he's young and powerful, everyone just lets him get away with it. And we've seen how well that goes the last couple of years. So I think by putting J. Jonah Jameson in this, I'm just kind of reminded how old he is already. He's already old to Spider-Man when Spider-Man is Spider-Man. So I don't know. I just feel like J. Jonah Jameson is the last thing I needed here. I just saw him attack her in an egg with tentacles. I don't need to see him here. And things, though, that I wish I could see here, I genuinely wish this book was a bit more decompressed. And I know how strange that sounds because I don't think you need to write to trade, but I do think you maybe need to write to the length of the story. And if each one of these scenes in this issue were like six or seven pages instead of one or two, it would turn it into a three-issue arc, sure. But it might be a three-issue arc where more things could happen. We could get actual character development instead of just like tropey, you don't want to mess with me. This is a family matter. Kind of. It just doesn't do anything for me if it's a line that I'm supposed to hear play out a certain way. That's just not what I'm looking for. So if I can't even figure out how there's room for Phil, I'm certainly not looking to make room for Kane. We're also having the thing happen with Spider-Girl and Dark Devil that was happening with Jimmy and Moose. It's just the same beats over and over again in the same way that it it just becomes weird. It doesn't move the story forward. Dark Devil is a compelling character and it's very obvious that he's on the top of his game and doesn't think May is there. That's clear. We don't need to have multiple scenes that really just repeat the same thing and have the same plot over and over again. Just get to his solo book. Yeah, and I don't know how much more they can dance that it's engaging for me. Right. Like, that's why it needs to be spaced out a little bit more, maybe used a little bit more carefully. I understand you're, you know, keeping other characters a little bit more safe and keeping them a little bit more off the board, but I feel like Dark Devil is a character to be, you know, very certain about, you know, putting him on the cover here also made me think he was going to have, like, an active role in this issue instead of more of the kind of cat and mouse and disappearing 
away sort of vibe that we've been getting this whole time. Yeah, I, I mean, he's in it a lot. It's just he's just not doing any he's not doing anything different for sure. But what he does is just to come and tell May that she sucks, which he could be right about, but give us a different beat. And he keeps seeing her succeed and be like, okay, you did succeed that time. But there's nothing about his primary motivations as far as May is concerned that has changed in 12 issues. It's it's just too much. Because I am, like I said at the start of this episode, more engaged in May than ever. Right. I maybe wish she was 19, queer, away at college, you know, commuting back and forth to see her parents on weekends. So that would explain how she's capable of being Spider-Girl without any sort of problem or intrusion, but she still has to do the black suit when she comes home. Hey, then people might have thought she was two different spider people. Like, I'm fine with whatever. There's things about this that because they want it so badly to be exactly Spider-Man, kind of hold it back. But I don't know. I thought that this issue was the first time I really like sat back and said, huh, man, I care about May and this universe, not just that I'm reading this book because it's the next issue in this series. Yep, I feel the same way. That said, I was much less enamored of the annual on a lot of levels, and it was a really unfortunate comparison because for all of our complaints, or at least our notes that we didn't care for about number 12, we still overall have had a lot of positive things to say about the general direction of the book and about how things feel a bit more substantive. And Misery, the A story of the annual, was just not it for me. I felt the same way. There's not really a lot to say, but the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, it just isn't a good story. There's no compelling hook to it. There's no... To bring in a new villain at this point when we've had way too much of that already was not a smart choice. The fact that the villain is Typhoid Mary, but not Typhoid Mary, very strange choice. There's nothing to connect with here, unfortunately. For an annual, that's really unfortunate. And this is the first time that I feel like you can really see when the older, more classic artists have their touch on the book. Don't get me wrong. Bill Sienkiewicz is to this day creating groundbreaking, you know, trend-setting art that new up-and-coming artists copy every single fucking day. You know what I mean? But, you know, we saw some places where maybe his young characters on the issue zero What If didn't really carry that youthful vibe. And I think that really comes through in Sal Buscema's finishes on the annual. It feels very heavy. It feels a bit dated, even by, like, you know, late 1999 standards. I find myself a little thrown by the heaviness. Yeah, especially coming off of 12 other issues that really did not look like this. Yeah, it looks so much different that in the trade, it is kind of jarring. And because the pencils are the same, it just is weird. You know, it's not like we went a totally different direction for this issue. It's just one fundamental part of it is different in a way that doesn't really work anyway. But setting that aside, sometimes you can get excited when it's a totally different creative team on an annual or something like that. Even if they don't do their best work, just the freshness of it gives you something. But because this is an important part, but not the whole part, that 
that is not super different. It's just not done super well. And I think part of what we might be reacting to is also that this issue was storied by Ron Friends and not that Ron Friends is some, you know, terrible story or, but this does not feel like the Spider-Girl we're still dealing with. Not to say that the fact that she plays basketball becomes vaguely unimportant pretty quickly, but the fact that she plays basketball becomes pretty unimportant pretty quickly. The fact that, you know, she fought this original Green Goblin normie in number zero and he barely comes up again ever. And then he shows up here. It's like, oh, okay. I, and then her parents are dead. And I'm like, oh, all right. For a second, I was like, oh shit, we're taking a hard left. And I got really excited because even though it wasn't a great issue, I was like, if this is what we're doing, this could change the game entirely for this character. But of course, it was all a dream. Which is also the problem with the last story in this issue. But, you know, we'll get to that in a minute. What I really want to point out is just how intense the dialogue becomes. It is wild. When we get to the murder spree on page 19 of the digital, your Uncle Phil is the next to fall, but but you stand paralyzed with indecision. Your spider sense is going wild. You are surrounded by danger. Odd, shouldn't it be zeroing in on the goblin? Brad Miller's final cry is cut hauntingly short. Your friends are being slaughtered. Davida and Jimmy Yama die screaming. I'm just like, what? I fed a computer thousands of lines of comic book narration and this is what the AI generated. Exactly. Exactly. And then one of the things that really made this issue have an unusual vibe was the point at which Uncle Phil in her dream is like, yes, murder him? That I don't understand. Is it because he was also a goblin? Am I meant to believe that he only believes in goblin rage? Like that really felt strange because to my reading of this book, I don't think that Phil has some sort of weird dark rage in him that's just waiting to bubble to the surface. So that moment really threw me off. That actually is something I have been wondering about if we were going to get some kind of darkness out of Phil. The problem is I can't ever tell the moments where I think I'm seeing it are intentional hints at it or not just the best writing. (laughs) You know, like even in the moments where he's doing his goblin laugh to stop Venom, there's a look in his eye that's just a little bit creepy and evil, but because it's never followed up on and because the laugh itself is literally a plot device slash weapon to stop Venom, like it has to be there no matter what, I had no idea what to do with it or if I should look onto it further. And to see it here, you you get like, oh, maybe. But then of course, again, it's all a dream. So I'm back to just having no idea if this is a thing or if I'm just trying to read into something and give a character depth that nobody else has bothered to give him. I completely agree. It's tough because, you know, there's certain names that as soon as you take the name, everybody's like, oh, you're probably some kind of dark or evil. Even if you're not, like, you know, I'm a big fan of Agent Venom. I think that's a really interesting take on the character. And, you know, he's never really particularly, you know, evil. It's not like a story they do with him. So that that's always kind of lingering, can get kind of annoying. It's why I like some of the more bold places they went with him. Something you and I have discussed in the pages of modern comics is where they've taken like some of the ghostwriter characters is so interesting and different. So even if a character does have kind of like a 
a heaviness about them, a classic sort of dark trope, you can get away from it and explore other ways to look at it. So I'm just not sure if that's what they're doing with Phil or not here yet, because the magic of having not read this in so long is there's so much I've forgotten. So I am in for some of this with you as well. I mean, I'm ready to keep reading. Got a lot more to go. It could be that this is a thing for Phil. I just at this point don't know. And when we have moments like this, I'm not really connecting to anything. I'm still just wondering if I'm on the right track or I'm seeing things that even the author was not seeing. And speaking of seeing things that even the author wasn't seeing, I have to assume that the parallels between the villain of this story, Melissa Carsdale, and Typhoid Mary, you know, a soap opera actress who is wronged and goes, you know, evil, who plays mind games. I have to Where's assume these exact that, clothes? Yeah. I mean, it has to be there, but that it's not drawn more directly, that nobody says, oh man, this is vaguely physically like Typhoid Mary, but then in no other way is it like Typhoid Mary. It's sort of interesting. I just wonder the intentionality of some of these points of comparison. Yeah. I mean, like, did you write Typhoid Mary into this whole story and then we're told, no, you cannot have her. So we just did this instead. That happens a lot. I can buy it. It's really believable. On the other hand, if you wrote this entirely new character like this and didn't realize that it was exactly like Typhoid Mary, I mean, I guess I can buy that too. You're really busy. You're writing comic books. Maybe you don't know about Mary, but it just, again, more editors, other eyes on this book. Somebody should have caught this and done something different. Because, you know, I wonder if any other eyes might have caught some of the issues with some of the backup stories in this annual. Speaking of comparing things, how Spider-Girl compares with Spider-Man is a really concerning two pages. Now, I do want to point out that I did leave off one incredible talent from the list of amazing creators on this annual. The unforgettable legend Joseph Rubenstein worked on these three pages. And for those of you who don't know, that guy worked on Wolverine, like the Claremont Miller story, and is just like such an important creator. So you know, there were some legends on these titles that we haven't even gotten to yet. And that's pretty exciting. But so, nothing else about this is... Yeah, finding out that Spider-Girl can't cling to walls if she doesn't really concentrate. And okay, you know, I just jumped the gun. I need to go back a panel. I question the value of that many spider bodies on that top panel of how Spider-Girl compares with Spider-Man. I wonder if it's meant to be Kirby and you know channel very classic comics but then there's not enough of a fade effect to indicate the motion and the transition into the physicality in the front and that kind of throws me off this also feels like it should have been a backup story with issues 9 and 10 or was it 10 and 11 yeah 10 and 11 so now I feel like maybe 10 and 11 were originally an annual yeah I mean it does feel that that's the one where she goes back in time and hangs out with Spider-Man this is her just kind of non-diegetically hanging out with Spider-Man. So it would make much more sense in 9 and 10. I, for the life of me, can't understand why it's not there. I can't understand why it exists in the first place. So, you know. I'm not a fan of certain language that, you know what, I don't think Tom DeFalco was doing anything sinister, and I still don't think it's actually sinister, but there's certain language I would just avoid now. For instance, at the bottom of the first page of How 
Spider-Girl compares to Spider-Man, I would just avoid referring to it as until May finishes developing. Like, it just feels like language we don't need to to tend toward when talking about a young woman coming into her body. It just feels weird. But what definitely felt way too on the nose and frustrating was thank you for pointing out that he's stronger than her. Really. Yeah, that's really... So necessary. That's, that's where we lost me immediately. And because it... We're going to get to it in a second. She has another power that he doesn't have, and that's great, whatever. But this was a really perfect time to be like, yeah, both super-powered people have the same superpowers. There's no difference. Anybody who has these powers can fight the same. They're all just as good. But to give us this really stark panel that says, boy, stronger than girl. You know, I know somebody's going to hear this and be like, oh, but physics, men tend to be stronger than women. These are superhero comics, and there's no applicable science that you can't fudge if you want to. This just wasn't necessary, and it feels so... 1998 older male not understanding what we need out of comics that girls could read. And, you know, they even go out of their way to make sure that he's stronger in every way. Spider-Man's more powerful leg muscles would also give him a major advantage in any leaping competitions. That's a real line of dialogue. Like, I didn't just say that. Like, that's real. And it's not that we necessarily are like, you know, man, to the stockade for these people. But this is indicative of not quite understanding why a female version of Spider-Man was necessary. Yeah, and not really caring about who could read this book or how to target it to a woman reader of any kind, a young girl reader of any kind. It just, again, it's not sinister, but it's 1998. You can absolutely understand how this is the way that it is, but it's so disappointing when you see stuff like this. However, I'm going to level with you. Spider-Girl's unique power is like my favorite motherfucking thing in the world. She can force repel things she's already touching. <laughs> it's just so funny that it's like she can fire things that she's already stuck to. Okay, I love it. I'm not coming for it, but no, it is sure. Give me billion interesting ways to use it please yeah it because it mostly just seems like she's stuck to that thing now it's over there <laughs> you know, she's stuck to that thing now that's over there we get no concept of how fast it is and it doesn't have anything to do with spiders i don't but she's got it she's got this power peter doesn't have it let's take this thing and use it for all it's worth because you know what was not used for all it was worth the next seven pages of this book oh lord i am genuinely frustrated by the Dear Diary segment and it's not just that I feel calling it Dear Diary and the sort of frustrating, first of all, not very what I would imagine to be an accessible font nowadays and in a very visually tight structure. I know I've done comics with prose in them my entire you know writing career but like this is a little tough to read and the representations of the covers are hideous and they really draw a lot of the new out of the issues i'm not saying it should have been called you know like yo journal and Ugh. been like her drawing everything and putting like and then i had a red bull and then i punched a bitch like i'm not saying it should have been something like that but this is particularly like one rainbow bear stamp away from a lisa frank trapper keeper 
I think the thing that frustrates me most is that the only female credit on this section is Christy Scheele on Colors. This is the perfect time to get a young woman's voice to write May's perspective. I get the various excuses for why it wouldn't have happened, but this is the perfect place to do it. The fact that Tom DeFalco, I mean, compared to a lot of other characters, including J2, he writes a young woman better than a young man in some capacities. It's still missing so much that at a certain point, it would have been neat to say, hey, we're getting really deep into May's head and we're going on a prose route. Let's find a young talent and use them to write this particular section and give a little more familiar voice to May. And hey, maybe I'll read what they wrote and pick up some tips. Because it's not that this is at any point out of character. I don't think that I was like, yeah, you know, they really missed the point of May. No, this all sounds really good and really like May, but it feels like, because again, this is actually another classic writer. This is not Tom DeFalco. This is Bill Roseman. So they actually had another guy come in and write new dialogue for May. You know, it's so important that these characters, I don't know, I guess maybe in some ways I'm disappointed that I as a young male identified so much with Spider-Girl because that makes me worry that young women weren't given the character they deserve. And it's not that young women can't identify with any character of any kind, but a young woman deserves a hero that she can identify with for having issues that face a young woman, just like I deserved one for having queer male needs. You know, everyone deserves that. And I worry in retrospect how much Spider-Girl suited my needs and kind of still does if she can suit the needs of the young female reader. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen in characters like Kamala Khan that this is a need that, when filled, creates an incredible fan base, great conversations, stories that will go a long time. We're seeing that show come out on Disney Plus soon. There was a need for it, and it really did not get filled, definitely did not get filled by this character, unfortunately. And yeah, as you mentioned, they did bring somebody else in to write this. So they could have brought a woman in and had her write this particular set of dialogue. I actually think this is a great place to have some writing that doesn't sound like the May we've seen before because it's a different place. It's her her diary, her journal. I think that would have been completely appropriate. This does sound like the May we get in the comics and that's great. We love some consistency, but that we are still having an old man's conception of what a girl is like in 1998 is disappointing. It's also something you just completely have to accept and roll with when you're examining this text because it's going to be the case for the whole thing. But this is a place where you can see like we had an opportunity and just nobody took it though if i can make one point that's really funny i can't help but notice how often using pop culture references of the day shorthands for trying to write a clever kid yes and how many of these pop culture references are still valid like you know what i don't know that xena is necessarily the world's first reference but you know what you would still hear somebody of the right age demographic make a Xena reference and maybe then their kid would as well. But like the Sipowitz reference, like I'm lucky that I'm from the tri-state area and that my mom was obsessed with Jimmy Smith's ass growing up or I would be like Sippa who? I'm also obsessed with Jimmy Smith's ass. I don't know what that says about me. But you've given us a plausible reason for which that might have been the situation for her as well. But again, it's just like, uh, could have done better. 
So speaking of could have done better, I don't mean to be so aggressive about this annual. I'm just really disappointed in how the pages were used. That double pinup situation is not my shit. Nope. I don't like the first pinup. It feels very slapped together. And I understand there's even visual continuity, like introducing the all new Buzz. Buzz's arm looks like it goes right into Speedball, but I don't care about Speedball. And uh, Kane being the size of Peter is strange. And Dark Devil looks like he's reaching for her boob. And it's the long awaited origin of Dark Devil. Guys, you've had 13 issues. Calm down. We're saying you need to stretch that out more. We're not saying rush to anything. Also, what the fuck version of Anext is that? What the fuck version of Anext? It's Cole Tiger, American Dream, Freebooter, Stinger, J2, and Mainframe. What the fuck version of Anext is that? Stresses me out, man. I mean, yeah, Anext really kind of just became a free-for-all at the end, so I buy it. Then we get two five-page previews, and let me just tell you, this is not the only time we get this goddamn first five pages of Fantastic Five number one. We get it here, we get it in Wild Things, number one and we get it in fantastic five number in one the first oh five God. pages of fantastic five number one yeah i didn't want to read it that many times no. but so we can jump ahead to the next piece of original story that is not just you know instantly reprinted the buzz you know i love this costume i'm not gonna lie the bug symbol doesn't really do it for me but i love this fucking costume i like that it's a weird take on yellow jacket i think the bug eyes are kind of cool but i don't think think this makes me care no you know thank you for showing me a cool scene featuring a new character but introducing a new character gets me interested in a new character showing me a new character doesn't do a whole lot yeah this is not an introduction this is almost a photograph I mean, it's it's cool it's very very cool but given that we had so much other page space used by things we really really did not need if you want to get me stoked about a new character probably use those for more page time for them. because this last story in the back, the game, number one, thanks for reminding me that she plays basketball. That was really useful. I might have forgotten. I forgot that she's always hanging slams and losing heat or whatever. So I'm so glad. But, you know, it just felt like they were buying time for a lot of this annual. And I almost wish that 10-11 had been the annual and this had just been issue 10. Because for all this was worth, there was barely a whole story. And there isn't actually a whole story. And all the stories that there are 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 just dreams anyway so it doesn't matter and it feels like dreams that aren't really meant to accomplish anything i don't know this is not her restless moment yeah the game doesn't tell me anything deeper about her personality i never understood i don't feel more aware of who she is because she took on you know soap opera queen janet or whatever i don't feel like that was the day that was saved it just feels like biding time you know we have so many amazing oh my gosh do you remember that time spider-man did that thing against that person in their dreams that's so crazy and they want to give us those but those came diegetically through having excellent other stories around them and there's still some excellent here but this annual is so far the weakest moment in the mc2 universe for me and i'm including the other books that we've discussed fantastic five later on this episode 
episode will completely change that argument. But through now, the annual is the weakest moment of the MC2 universe for me. I think you're right about that. But, you know, I had said to you that last time when we said goodbye to A-Next, we wouldn't be saying goodbye to them for very long. And surely enough, here they come popping in to Spider-Girl number 13 and now the Avengers. You know, this story was maybe originally an A-Next story. I don't know. What do you think about having them show up already? You know, the reason I don't like it is because I know we're getting very little A-Next or Avengers, New Avengers, whatever. We're getting very little story from them going forward. They will show up a number of times, but they're not really going to have a solid continuous book again. We left them on a weird, confusing note. They are still around. It's valid. You know, I'm not like, how did they show up here? But them as guest stars in May's book, maybe in time I'll grow to really enjoy it. You know, maybe they'll slowly get their character character growth that they desperately need over time. At this point, it's just like we had an ugly breakup. I was hoping I wouldn't see them again for two or three months while I get over it. And then it's a week later and you run into them at your favorite restaurant. Yeah, absolutely. And that's also how I feel about getting back to the Jimmy plot line. Yeah. I feel like, you know, for an arc that we think is sort of the best one so far, there's a lot in it that's a little bit more eye-rolly than I would like. There's silly things like the dummies being labeled Crazy 8. Mr. Nobody, Dragon King in the sequence with Phil. Not that I'm coming for anything, but again, the lack of technology in the future is jarring. I'm not saying that they should have these like motorized hangers when they're at the mall, but I am saying there is a weird amount of quick, get the pencil. It's the best we've got. Yeah, it's that constant. Is this the 616's alternate 1998? Or is this an actual future in which there has been a lot of progress? Because we've got a dude that's a brain in a robot body in Fantastic Five and it feels like some of this technology is actually 1995. Because don't forget, there's a brain and a robot body but nothing can be done about Peter's leg. <sighs> I just don't understand. Yeah. And speaking of just don't understand, the whole Moose Courtney thing and the whole Jimmy May thing, I have never seen two gay dudes attached to two obvious lesbians so hard in my life. But this this is some real intense transference. And this is so funny because once again, we have the Yama boys in the same issue, making absolutely no contact with one another. <sighs> Terrific. You guys are really doing a great job being cousins here. And the moose thing, like sometimes moose looks like an adorable child. And sometimes they draw him roughly the size of J2. So seeing them on back-to-back -back pages, it did kind of remind me that moose really is childlike. And, for all the jokes we make about him, I do worry about poor Moose. He is such a good-hearted young man, but seems a little too dumb for the world. Definitely too dumb for the world. Not actually super good-hearted. He's kind of a bully. Oh, you know, that's true. I think I'm just thinking of him as like, you know, oh man. Yeah, I think I'm just thinking of him as like Schmoopy. Schmoopy for Spider-Girl. Sure. And, yeah. and But like the thing is, he he probably is a good, good kid. Or he could be if we would get some more characterization out of him. You know, it's such an easy trope that the kid who is a bully actually has a lot more going on in his life. And if 
if people would just invest in him a little bit and get him to open up, they would see that and then he would have a chance to grow. It's there. There is potential there to have spent so much time on the same beats between him and Jimmy where it just becomes a homosexual comedy is to his detriment in a number of ways. But the biggest one is that he's still not really a character. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. I feel like, you know, not like in a mean way, but like, thank you for pointing out that I kind of fell into the trap that they were hoping I'd fall into. <laughs> it's important to keep track of because do you know who I have never fallen for? Franklin Richards. He sucks. Oh my God. He sucks. He sucks so much, sucks so hard. He like vaguely calls her garbage and then like also calls the Avengers garbage. And like, he's not cool. He's not cute. He's not even really that smart or clever. We're going to find out he's a big sad boy. I don't get Franklin Richards or the perspective that we're supposed to get on him. Yeah, I I do not recognize him as a teen from my experiences in 1998. I don't care about him. He is not a hero. He doesn't even have what I think they're trying to give him is Johnny Storm's like kind of swagger because Johnny does not have that anymore and is just a weird angry dad. But there's nothing compelling about any of it coming from Franklin and a big part of that is the character design. The hair is just terrible. I don't know who was like, yeah, you know, young people, long hair, just go with it. But no, it doesn't work. Nothing about it works. It feels very out of touch, very disconnected. And that might even be my problem with the A Next appearance in this issue as well. I don't recognize this incredibly friendly, upbeat stinger. <laughs> she is so nice. But you know what? They have to be the real A Next because they needlessly have a test in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it's just, they just start testing each other so that if an actual emergency were to occur, they would all be far too tired to stop the bad guys. And she fails. Well, I mean, kind of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they tell her she failed, but they make her a reserve Avenger. It just, it's just kind of nonsense on page. Again, we kind of needed a break from A next. This doesn't really do anything so great for them that it's like, oh, okay, well, at least they're still around and we get to see them being cool. Stinger, the only thing we've ever recognized about Stinger in her book is how wretched she is. So this feels almost gaslighty the way she's a different character. These tests are silly. It Again, it's just like, this is not where we needed to be right now. And technically she fails the test, but they make her reserve Avenger. And I have to wonder if it was just that this would have been the only month in this entire schedule that J2 wouldn't have appeared in. And perhaps they were like, this gets him on the page. Do it real quick. Put him in the book. Because otherwise he's just here. Like he just acts as a statue. He's almost like parking the Blackbird behind the X-Men. He's the big thing in the background of the shot that reminds you what book you're in. But he doesn't have a whole lot of personality. He doesn't get to say much. It feels as though we spent so long developing these characters and then just sort of forgot to remember that they are in fact characters and we do care about their continuity of personality. Yeah, exactly that. I think he's a great example because he just doesn't really do anything. So you don't see growth or recognize anything about him. He's just a statue. Stinger is the other great example because she's a different person. And I think that sort of feeling like the actual characters of the MC2 are super underdeveloped with A Next and J2. You know, I know he's a member of A Next, but he had his own fucking book. You know, feeling that these characters are so underserved and underdeveloped is why issues 14 and 15 of Spider Girl kind of got on my nerves. That it was all about Kane and all about Speedball. These are two characters that I'm inheriting. These aren't characters that are interesting to 
the MC Tuniverse. These are characters that exist to Marvel, and every other story in issue 14 in particular was just continuing a thread that should have gone further in 12. Yeah, I think that's correct. But I mean, that's even part of why I like this trade, because it did kind of give me that continuity I wanted. You know, issue 14 combined with issue 12 gave me a very complete Kane and Dark Devil story. I do get a little frustrated at how many of the stories are somebody kicks somebody and then everybody else just gets away. It does feel like that's been a number of the issues, but I think the thing that this story really did is while the MC2 line very much feels like it's folding in on itself, Spider-Girl is really beginning to get a groove and I'm beginning to recognize not just the characters, but the story beats and it, if for better or for worse, nothing else in this universe kind of reads like Spider-Girl to me. Yeah, that is absolutely true that nothing else reads like Spider-Girl. She really is continuing to develop. We're getting more time with her. You know, this obviously this book is not getting canceled like a next and J2. So the development is continuing. It is slow at times and awkward, but it is happening over time. And I think we are getting to the point where even though the individual steps have been a little rough and hard to connect with, the sum total of it is adding up to something that is enjoyable to connect with, that is making a character that's really likable, that is giving us a lot of interest in, especially Dark Devil, who is appearing more and more. Again, those appearances could be better done individually, but as a whole, he really is a part of her story and we're starting to care. Kane, I mean, the problem with Kane is I know who Kane is, so I I care in a different way, but you're right insofar as these two books together, they could have been fused in a way to make one great story about Kane, Dark Devil, and Spider-Girl, and all the chaff probably could have been reworked into another relatively interesting story. And I love that you brought up that you have a relationship with Kane because... I don't so much. So for me, the Kane parts of this story mean very little. I like it as like a slow reveal. Oh, what has been going on behind the scenes all along? So, you know, other than the fact that I find myself in a position where the complication of canon is getting to be overwhelming. Does canon matter or not? I know that Kane is a clone of Spider-Man. So is Kane Peter's brother here? Is he May's dad here? Who is he to Dark Devil? Is Dark Devil her dad's clone's son? I don't know and then should they be flirting are they siblings or are they the same person so it's like spider bation i don't know so in some ways i kind of like knowing less about kane here but there are other ways in which it does wrinkle my engagement with what they want me to be feeling yeah and i guess i would say i have no idea what they want me to be feeling so i'm just kind of going with it and just going with it i have a huge problem i cannot just go with it with the title of issue 15, Swingin' and Slammin' with Speedball. This is just drugs. This is just drugs. And this opening is particularly insane. There, She's bruised and she's slamming it with Speedballs. She's trying to remember her name. I, was, I thought this was going to be the horniest, wildest issue of any comic book I had ever read. This is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> 
It is a crazy, crazy issue, actually. And it's one where I feel perhaps that the team had this issue in mind early on. This one is one that reads like a kind of like a classic Marvel beat sheet. I would just replace Speedball with Fantastic with Fantastic Torch. I gotta go. Holy shit. I would just replace Speedball with Human Torch. It's the drugs. It's the drug. With Human Torch and have it be Impossible Man. But this is just a classic story. You know, the friends all showing up and being in the midst of it is a very fun element. But man, do I love all of that. Hey, Courtney, don't you have to go uh, call the cops? Oh, okay. Don't that you want to the best part me? To me. <laughs> that was the best part to me. She just thinks that this big man wants to save her and he's like, go save me. And she's <laughs> like, what? No. Because I was wondering how they were, like, what the ridiculous way they pulled off Moose still not finding out. I was, you know, because I was like, she's going to show up and Courtney's going to be right next to him and then we're done. This whole thing is done and we're going to take another hard left to advance this story. And this was so not what I expected for the like, oops, through mishaps, he still thinks it's her, but it's just great. Now, I think that that was a great example of where they figured out how to utilize perhaps that this team doesn't have their finger on the pulse of what's hip so great. You know, Courtney doesn't either. Exactly. Moose is a little inept. So like this is this is pretty likable. But I think perhaps the DeVita stuff is bordering on like jive turkey actionable at times. Mm-hmm. She says girlfriend way too much. And there, you know, like some of these references to stuff like the WNBA, you know, that's actually not problematic, but it starts to feel silly. So much of trying to make May feel young and cool. Like, you know, when DeVita says, hey, the lady really jazzed me today. She got the moves and the two to be a major player. Must be so wild to be one of them costume types. Like, oh my god. Is she gonna break out into Eddie Murphy Raw and start singing the original score to Dreamgirls? This is not okay. The only reason that it's not like just straight up racist and incredibly offensive is because May has equally stupid semi-similar dialogue that no teen white or black would ever say. And hers is decidedly whiter. Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, completely. Yeah. So it is offensive. It's a little bit racist, but it's also just bad. Like it's not. It's just trying to think what a young person that fits this vibe might say. Right. It's, yeah, I get what you mean. It's sort of an even handed across the board offensive, not anyone more offensive than any other on purpose. Right. Which is such a, a tricky place to be with these characters. And I think, you know, there are really great references is here like Fingeroths being one of the stores that's great Danny Fingeroth being a classic Marvel writer and editor I love that but you know there's there's stuff you know Mr. Abnormal is just trash he's just Plastic Man or Mr. Fantastic but like no personality just annoying you know he's the kind of guy that's like ask me to do dick jokes with my powers also the line of dialogue that most deeply troubled me was pulling a Clinton yeah that was just absolutely 
absolutely not acceptable. No. Like not trying to police anything, but that felt very much like it did not belong, not just in this book, but did not make sense here. Yeah. Now, our last issue of Spider-Girl for this run is like the densest issue of Spider-Girl yet. Mm-hmm. The Lady Hawk appearance here is nice. I do like that. It's, you know, important to remind us why we were introduced to her in issue six, right? So Lady Hawk was introduced at the start of the second trade, and she doesn't show back up till the end of the third trade. All right, well, she made it in once a trade. I like that. But one of the things that sucks is she's two characters that feel highly underdeveloped, not just one. <laughs> yeah, they so, might have been better served showing up where A next did. Yeah. And this book wound up coming out in January of 2000. Wild Thing and Fantastic Five ended in February of 2000 with no follow-up titles prepared to go. The buzz doesn't launch until July. And between that and this issue, if you go by the trades, like where the buzz would fall in terms of Spider-Girl trades, you have 12 full issues of Spider-Girl before you get to the next spinoff in MC2. And in real time, that was six months of publication. So in terms of where we are at a pivotal moment in the MC2 line, I feel like issue 16 is a test to see if Spider-Girl could make it without support from other titles, which is why perhaps it feels like issue 16 goes out of its way to mention everyone. Yeah, I mean, if she's going to have to be the one that supports everything, if this is going to be the venue for all of this character work to show up, better throw it all in there. I thought that the art was really starting to hit a pretty powerful stride. The full page May on page six of the digital is one of the best full page Mays in the book so far. Part of the problem is a lot of the hallway scenes are just the same hallway scene over and over again. It doesn't really feel different. It doesn't really feel special. But considering that this this issue should come with a fucking trigger warning by today's standards, but by 1999 standards, I think they maybe just thought this was fucking Porky's or something something but this issue has two guys putting a camera in the girls locker room and the ending which involves it i can't even fucking begin but i think this story is almost would almost be better edited out almost like this story plays out more problematically than it provides anything positive yeah unfortunately i think that's true the spider girl portions are again like we're getting somewhere with this character there's a weird stinger appearance again DeFalco, you wrote both these books. You know what Stinger's like. How did you characterize her like this? But whatever, she's there. Spider-Girl is part of a larger universe with other superheroes. She's finding her stride. That's great. All the stuff in the school, again, is old white men who don't understand teens of the time, so they can't write anything that reflects the experience of the people who will be reading this book. And at best, that is something that is sometimes like funny and charming with a character like Courtney. At worst, it is incredibly offensive and here we are because the drama here is even when it's positive even when like it's may and stinger so may and cassie talking about how they're both the bug children of bug hero men that it's two women talking about their dads and then the other part of this story is the guys who bugged the locker room bugged the wrong room so now the football team is going to beat them to death i guess this is the second story in this 
universe where the punchline is something involving a men's locker room is going to result in a third party being horribly injured because we had the J2 slipping on the soap thing for body cast Carl. Oh, right. Oh, my God. Buried so that one deep. it feels like, well, that's unfortunately, I think, what the humor that they're going for there is. Yeah. So I just find myself a little troubled by some of these quote unquote harmless coming of age tropes that have a really specifically kind of sexual sinister bend especially when you put them in the context of teenagers yeah there's nothing redeeming about it 1998 to me is a time where like again maybe with the right editor i don't know but i feel like i feel like even defalco really should have known that this is it's neither funny nor appropriate nor is it in any way edifying your book or growing your characters because by today's standards those guys would be going to jail this wouldn't be a slap on the wrist they would be getting jail time and i mean unless they were rich or you know particularly white like i'm talking mayflower white you know like read a brothel in the early 90s mayflower white so it's one of those things that the creative team really didn't see what they were talking about with the things they were talking about so you get what really is just there's no other way to put it taking indecent photos of underage kids where they thought they had privacy and making jokes about it and it's just gross yeah and speaking of just gross i guess it's that time you know, this spectacular project that we've been undertaking has been a lot of fun, and I will trade you every awkward page of Spider-Girl 16 for any awkward page of Fantastic Five. This book just did not work for me. You know, I thought that there was some underdeveloped characterization in Spider-Girl that definitely was hard to miss, but even underdeveloped Spider-Girl characters are leagues ahead of Fantastic Five. Yeah, because even underdeveloped Spider-Girl characters get some time. This book is just so fast and so unclear as to where it has no direction. I I don't know what to say about this one. And I think part of it has to be that we've met these characters over and over again and I never really came to care for them in their early appearances in Spider-Girl or their minor appearances in Avengers Next. There's nothing making me like this team and there's nothing making them likable. I'm only really reading this title because it's what we're doing but there's nothing about the art or the cover there's nothing that sets this book apart in a way that makes me want to read it even when i look at the cast shot on the top of the first page i'm sure it's meant to look a little bit 60s when you take a look at that first page stan's deli kirby's one hour photo Iyer's quality audio and video that's really great i think that's very charming but even if you want me to think this is meant to look like classic art it looks messy yeah and i do think that the vibe of this book is supposed to be classic marvel art and story which when done correctly is a lovely homage to a time when things were very different and unfortunately you can pretty clearly say that the stories and the art were not as good they were to the best of what people could do at the time and there's a lot of great stuff to pull from them and they were inspiring they inspired incredible stories to be told down the line but we all know when you start to read old comics it's a thing that comes up over and over again they're just ridiculous the stories are not that great they're the writing is overwrought the art is imperfect 
that's fine. They were the best that people could do at the time, and we have all benefited from their existence. We love to read them in that, like, thank you for your service. You have informed generations of amazing stories being told. This, I think, attempts far too closely to get back into that mood in a way that is so detrimental to the story. I agree completely. And I wonder if part of our complaint about this is I truly feel this issue was written and drawn as though it was meant to run with J2 number one and A next number <clears throat> and A next number one. This does not feel like its own period in time. I don't get a sense that this is coming on the heels of anything. That's part of the danger of having no real continuity in a universe at any given time. It's hard to know what's going on and how these books react in terms of one another. Because if I did notice one thing I was not cool with, it was that fucking Fantastic Four flashback. Are you kidding me? Are you giving me a four-page Fantastic Four flashback in a Fantastic Five book? Because here's my thing. No one bought this that did not know who the Fantastic Four are. Yep. That's not going to happen. And if continuity doesn't matter, we don't need to know who the Fantastic Four are. We can save that for far down the line. We need to know who the Fantastic Five are. Exactly. And I feel at no point are the Fantastic Five made clear on the page. I'm not feeling particularly, I guess, satisfied by their characterization. So the idea that we need to lose additional pages to telling something that, and no offense to Tom DeFalco, I'm sure he's told better elsewhere. I'm sure at some point in his career, Tom DeFalco told the Fantastic Four origin, and you know what? It might have looked a little nicer than this. And I just don't know why we're doing some of this. Yeah, I feel the same way. I don't know why we've chosen to so drastically change an iconic character like Johnny Storm and to give all his worst characters to Franklin and give Johnny new really awkward uncomfortable characteristics. I don't know why Reed is a brain in a robot, although gosh, one of the reporters has some speculation and it is appalling. Oh, it is it is shocking. It is shocking that that got through in a 2000s era. Like, I can't think of a better word. Weren't we more evolved than that by then? I would have hoped so, but apparently not. You know, one of the things that sucks about this story is the bad guy even says that he's not important. Like, who I am isn't important, just that I'm here to hurt you. Jesus Christ. What is important, though, is Mr. Kangshaw. What a great bad guy name. Hired this guy to kidnap the F5 and the guy sucks and we get Reed's new body and the fact that the guy says that Reed chose this body because since he couldn't save his wife he didn't feel like a man so he shouldn't look human is like Hemingway had more subtle metaphors for impotence like really and there's something that I'm really shocked about knowing what they know about the experiments of J2 and Anex why would this whole issue exist Exist in a post J2 and A next world. I have to assume this was made much earlier than the rest of the titles. Yeah, they had it like queued up, ready to go to release, and then something came up where they couldn't publish four, and so they did. They just left this one out, then they realized they wanted it later. We don't actually know, but I think it does really seem like this is created whole cloth without really knowing anything about what the MC2 is or is going to be, not after a couple years of learning. And 
and Big Brain's new model at the end <laughs> is horrifying. horrifying. It is. It's almost is impressive. Like, like it will haunt my nightmares for the rest of my life. But yeah, yes. I, yeah. I just don't think anybody was like, "What I want to make is a robot that will scare children." It needs to be hyper muscular in some ways and awkwardly skinny in others, and it should have a giant bulbous head that belies a swollen brain. And it is just not the. It's not even the nightmare I wanted. Like it is not even the nightmare that I wanted. And it feels like a stopgap measure to get us to something else because even though he's a robot, he still gets a hover chair. Yeah. And he even mentions he goes, they couldn't give me my like hover form in this body. Which what? is such a weird choice. You were the you're writing this. It can be whatever you want. <laughs> you're creating it at the time to your needs. Why? Those things are not part of larger character growth. So you know if Reed were to say like I liked my old body when the mobility was part of it and I didn't have a separate unit. This is really frustrating for me. I'm so frustrated that I have to do this robot body thing. At least we get a characterization of a Reed who has wants and desires and frustrations. He's still supposed to be Reed, but he's robotic. He's just a floating thing. And then yeah. you take away the floating. Do you think they thought that he looked too much like Herbie? Like, perhaps No, actually, I, I saw a thing where they said specifically that it, they wanted him to look like Herbie. I guess maybe they, after deciding to do that, realized that they uh, needed to dial it down a bit. But again, whatever the reasoning, give me something in the story for it, too. And when we finally get kind of an arc, it's Fantastic Five, two through four. And when I say finally get an arc, I sort of mean for the, the greater purpose of the MC2 project, we kind of had an arc in A Next, but so many pieces of that three-part arc weren't exactly you know what? No. Yeah. This is a lot like that arc, I yep. think. Oh, absolutely. But it doesn't feel like it learned at all, no. which is unfortunate. And the concentrated villains of this arc, the Wizards Warriors, are not compelling no. in any way. No. So we start this whole three-part thing with getting... Taurus Storm, the son of Human Torch and Ms. Fantastic. And I want to point out that we haven't really said much about Lija. She doesn't have a whole lot of personality, and neither does Johnny. As a matter of fact, they both just sort of seem to be eternally worried about not being very good at being the Fantastic Four, which seems like a terrible personality trait to have. Yeah, especially coming off of the cockiest man in Marvel Comics. Yeah, and... Once again, we find ourselves in a testing sequence. I just don't understand. Why does Tom DeFalco think all people with super abilities would want to do is test things? Because here they are fighting super dildo droid or whatever, and he can't stop smashing it. He's a smasher man. And Zack and Thorped and Thwok. And he actually defeated the entire Fantastic Five. And then a guy who comes out in a Walmart style Captain America t-shirt says cool and I just feel like there is so much what should be tongue-in-cheek here but plays out very serious that makes me wonder did they get that this was more of a retro pastiche already I mean I feel like they did get it like I do feel like that was the intention but there is so much missing from making it work like Tom DeFalco has also talked about 
about how Juggernaut was specifically the kid's book. And I absolutely get that. I see it all over the book, but there's so much missing from that idea to make it a kid's book. And it is at certain times so adult in inappropriate ways for the material to be in a book for kids that it is disturbing. This similarly, like, yes, absolutely retro pastiche trying to reference early Fantastic Four stuff. Great idea. I'm sure there's ways to make it work. This is not the way. I I very agree. I'm not sure that giving me the kid of Elijah and Johnny with Taurus made the story more interesting. Like having a kid around. Oh, oh, so he's the Franklin. Yeah, he's literally the Franklin and Franklin's already there. And what's the point? And then you've got Dr. Gilcrest, who evidently uses the same commands in programming his video games. So that's why the bad guys can defeat him. And that's how they get a control of the superroid, which, by the way, I guess that's the problem. I'm using for my next cycle so (laughs) I don't even know what to say about that fucking name the fight is so dumb it's so pointless the only thing that this fight seeks to do is reintegrate the wizard but then I thought canon didn't matter yeah here we are again you know we were already there because of this where is Sue Storm thing and why is Reed in the skin robot body you led with this canon always matters we know it always matters it is not a bug it's a feature don't Don't skip around it like this. Find ways to make it work for you. And speaking of things that they try to make work for them, but I don't think really do, packing issues of Fantastic Five with as many characters as you can does not make the story stronger or clearer so that the Wizards Warriors and the Wizard and possibly Sue and Reed and the whole Fantastic Five and upwards of three of their kids and then appearances by Spider-Girl and some of a next it's what the fuck guys there were five issues there were only five and spider girl shows up in the third one and so wait how many issues do franklin and mayday have to be in together before they have any kind of chemistry or relationship there are not enough issues on this planet to make that happen it just feels that the thing i was most excited about was the negative zone feels strange like oh wow in the negative zone cool like that shouldn't be the draw I want to be excited that Marvel's first family is here that they're in the future I want to be excited by the future of the Fantastic Four and what they could be but for some reason there is no point at which Johnny is dynamic or engaging for some reason there is no point at which Reed is dynamic or engaging Lija sort of suffers from aren't I a cool wife syndrome she's sort of the opposite of every character Leah Remini has ever played on CBS. She's really excited about her fat husband and like that's it's she just doesn't have anything interesting there and yeah and she's a th- I don't know. I wanted better for these characters. And Ben. Ben doesn't fucking matter. No, Ben absolutely does not matter. He's literally a living hammer. There's no story. So my problem with the Fantastic Five is by 1990, or sorry, we're in 2000 now. We know families look different. We're starting to see depictions of non-nuclear families. It's awesome. This is ostensibly an attempt to do that, but it is so choppy and ill-defined and unwilling to examine what makes family and to expand 
definitions in any way. So one of the things is that Ben Grimm is divorced and shares custody of his two children with his wife, which could be a really interesting place to tell stories. But it's just kind of like this weird background thing that's happening via video call. Taurus is just like a normal bratty kid. There's nothing special about that. Lijah is not a compelling mother in any way. She's not doing anything unique as a mother. Johnny just seems absolutely miserable at all times. And again, Reed is a fucking robot. So not a normal family, obviously, but not a family that is abnormal in recognizable ways and in ways where you say, oh yeah, I totally see the way my divorced parents are making it work in this. And I have to assume that some of this is because they didn't realize how repetitive they were creating a universe. Everybody goes through a portal and comes out dead or missing. <laughs> Juggernaut, Anext, the, uh, you know, the, I almost said the Sue and Reed family, <laughs> the Richards is, you know, it's so crazy that no one said, Hey, Tom, same beat. Can we talk about how you're kind of, you're just doing Buffy season five a lot right now, pal. <laughs> Are you doing okay? And it's certainly not on purpose that these stories are repetitive. I'm sure. I'm sure if somebody had caught it at any point, it would be a very different conversation right now. But by the time we get to Fantastic Five number four, the startling secret of Reed and Sue Richards, I don't care. Yeah. I just don't care at all. Yeah. You know, we got that flashback to it at the beginning of issue three, where I think we're supposed to be attracted to Franklin, who's having dreams about his parents dying while naked. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with that, but I, I don't know. They spent 14 pages telling me what happened to the people that aren't supposed to be the stars of the book, and I just don't know what to do with that. When I was a kid in the early 90s, one of the things that I thought was so cool, and every day that I got older, I realized was just stupid and needlessly complex, Hyperstorm. Hyperstorm. Such an insane, Byzantine, ludicrous, completely incomprehensible piece of, say it with me now, continuity. It was so odd the idea that you would bring this in at all, but then that it is such an integral part of the continuity of why Reed and Sue are not there. I just... I want better for these people. And more than even just these people, I want better for me. Like, <laughs> yeah. not to be rude about it, but I am ultimately not satisfied with this issue. The ending cannot possibly be the end of that story for this run. I know that while Anext and Fantastic Five will both get second volumes in the amazing MC2 era, that's some time away from now. That's some 70 fucking issues of Spider-Man. Spider-Girl from now. I don't think that is an acceptable way to ostensibly leave the Richards story right now. Just that Reed's like, nope, I'm on the other side and I'm here with my wife and we're just gonna we're just gonna hang out he, here in Key West. No! You are not in negative zone Key West. This is a bad situation. You are melting. There was a certain point at which I was like, oh, he's not a brain and a robot. He's like around somewhere. And of course that's the big reveal, which just doesn't feel feel special at that point, especially because it's come after so much convoluted, silly stuff that doesn't matter. Whether Sue is alive or dead and could be brought back, I I don't care because I don't care about any of these people. None of them seem happy. None of them seem 
anything like me. I don't recognize anything in any of them. It's all just stuff that's happening. And, you know, that's kind of all you can say about it. Part of what makes me struggle to understand what they're trying to accomplish is what part did the wizard actually play in all this? What is his role here? Yeah. He just goes over there and kind of gets defeated. Defeated, like by showing up and hyperstorm what actual role does hyperstorm play in this story what actually are we supposed to get from hyperstorm's involvement here why would it not be an eyeless yeah why are there so many pieces that i'm struggling to fit together when you know you only have five issues you know that you know you only have so much time and you've already seen the mistakes that the team made in the last run so i just have to ask myself why they chose to make this issue four and how they chose to for the most part leave the reed and sue story at this point it's impossible to guess because it's just so there's i don't even see like hints or breadcrumbs in what's there it really is a throw everything at the wall situation and absolutely none of it stuck so it's just chaos on the floor and you know i wish that i could say that i felt differently about the final issue no but in some ways i I think the final issue is by far the most offensive stroke in the Fantastic Five's, you know, masterclass on mismanaging a title. Yes. This literally is a next number five. Yep. This literally is the issue of a next that did this exact story with Kristoff as Dr. Doom and them going to Latveria and having to find out what's going on and it being fucking it's literally the same story beat for beat with Stinger in the car telling them that Kristoff is Dr. Doom. So already, why are you worried? Yeah, there was, and they reference Anex number five in it. It literally has a footnote to it. And the issue ends with everybody being like, oh man, you know, we all want to be on the Fantastic Five too, just like our parents. And that's cute. I always love those moments. You know, I like the idea that Legacy Heroes kids are, you know, they're proud to be part of that lineage. You know, that's always something that makes those stories feel special because I don't like it when, you know, they show that like Heroes kids are embarrassed by them. Nah, that's, I get that that's even like a real thing, but that's not why I come to my books. I don't come to my books to see my characters get wailed on by their kids so you know it's cute that they want to be part of their parents legacy but this story trying to tell me that there can be nine of them not interesting and just for the record diablo is a very bad choice here like uh from a canonical point of view so diablo at that point in canon had made about 50 appearances ever the last time he had appeared in a proper fantastic four title was october of 1987 and that was his first proper appearance in a fantastic four title since 1981 so it's not like diablo was some hot property he had appeared in a title called fantastic force in between like a 90s you know additional title they tried to make work diablo doesn't work for me he's not believable this whole thing just maybe they had a lot of extra green and purple but this issue just does not land at all the diablo thing feels like another like again if it were like a send-up or a parody of classic comics it could have been really something it could have been something cool and great the use of diablo feels like it's gesturing more towards something like that but because there is very little humor what humor there is doesn't succeed and there's not a lot of nimbleness or referential storytelling of any kind it just is a lame villain choice that doesn't go anywhere 
And again, it can't go anywhere. This is the last fucking yeah, pre- issue. Precisely. Like introducing Diablo is essentially one of the last things they do in the canon of their five issues. And then that's it. And then the book's just over on this promise of maybe there'll be more members of the Fantastic Five. More members? Shit, I don't expect there to be more issues. So how are you going to try and tell me there's going to be more members of the Fantastic Five? At the end of the day, this series really is like my first D. This is like an outright D. You know, I'm going to give the third run of Spider-Girl a couple of extra points and you know even though it had some clunks in it I'm willing to give that volume like a a good solid B plus maybe probably more like a B to be reasonable and fair but you know this gets a D for me this just does not work on any level we are on the exact same page If it hadn't been for what I absolutely love about Wild Thing right away, I might have been really worried that this project was a huge mistake. (laughs) But I love Wild Thing. Like we started this episode with, Wild Thing is an engaging take on Wolverine from the jump. And that's one of the things that makes her work so well right away is we're not waiting to find her more interesting. That was something we gave May. We gave May a little time to become interesting. But Rena, maybe it's the promise of who she is and her parentage, or maybe it's that she starts already partially formed in J2. So we have, you know, a character to sort of jump in on instead of having to see her come to life in her own title. But I definitely think that by Wild Thing Zero, in my read order, I felt a little bit rejuvenated, a little bit more, okay, I can do this. I can get through it. Yeah, I felt very similarly, and I think you're correct about a lot of the reasons. Not only is she fully formed in this, she was fully formed before J2. She had her whole Wild Thing set up ready to go, so we're not doing Awkward Origin Story. This is what we kept saying, you know, Stinger, Thunderstrike, all these people have the exact same origins. Their dad disappeared and now they have to become the hero, or we don't know what happened before it's all vaguely connected to continuity but continuity doesn't matter so ignore it but also here is all that continuity presented before you with rena her parents are right there there's no big mystery about what happened to them they just got older wolverine still has his costume and is relatively operative electra less so but whatever that's not a mystery to it she just got older they seem to not love when she is wild thing but they don't seem to absolutely hate it they love her dearly which is something that we're missing from a lot of the other parents obviously they love their kids but the way that wolverine and electra express it is so much more wholesome and enjoyable this is the first strikingly different character that we follow in a strikingly different book that also in a lot of ways just that are you know kismet and stuff coming together it all works so it ends up being a very refreshing change of pace and i thought that one of the ways that they sought to keep this book a change of pace from the jump was by having such a silly introduction issue. I think one of the things that made the other introduction issues so heavy was they involve everybody having to become a hero on the spot because of some horrible thing. But this is just Wild Thing goes on a mission with her dad. Now, I do want to mention that the art on this wizard number zero is particularly challenging. There are times the faces and angles and um, the Wendigos sometimes look oddly sexual and there is some really interesting things about like the length of Wolverine's area 
media that are also I also feel like he can flex his ear wing things I don't know so this is not my favorite issue for art and it's not just that it's Sal Buscema's finishes there's something a little weird about Tom Smith's colors here they feel flatter than usual and I'm otherwise very into this zero issue for me it has a very animated series effect to it it is not amazing in any way I think I had less trouble with it than you did but regardless it's not the best the good thing is regardless of the quality it kind of works with the silliness of the story overall and between that and the references to Wolverine fighting the Hulk which in this case it's Rena fighting the Hulk it all just kind of comes together as this really great wholesome introduction to I shouldn't even say introduction because we've met her it's just like oh hey we're gonna spend some time with Rena now here's her life it's a complete story with a complete aesthetic that while not perfect is perfectly enjoyable for one issue and I did like some of the consistencies like I felt that this is still that same hideously deformed yet very intelligent talky talky Hulk yeah and this is the exact same kind of flat if expected iteration of Doctor Strange yeah so you know for a zero issue it's fine it doesn't do anything to really flesh much out I like that it goes at the front of the book in a matter of speaking that it's a zero because something about a zero issue doesn't make it feel like a big deal like you can kind of skip a zero issue most of the time spider girl zero is a little bit different but zero issues always feel like something added later on to fill in some stuff so that this feels kind of dumb doesn't bother me i just think it's a fun reintroduction to a character that we've already become familiar with yep exactly if anything i feel like maybe some of those j2 backup stories could have gone in here and would have filled in you know a little bit of the fact that this is just like 14 pages the original wizard version had a sketchbook which filled out the last couple of pages although the funniest thing is in the sketchbook it actually says my designs for the uncanny x people they may show up later the only thing I want to point out is, once again, we do find ourselves in a position where I'm just not sure why Tom DeFalco loves to describe people transforming out of giant, muscular, monstrous, naked forms as little boys. Oh, yeah, the Wendigos. Yeah, it's just there's a lot of size changing into little younger men bodies. That's just It's hard to miss just how much it occurs on panel. Yeah, it's really odd. Again, I think it's like a, he thinks it's funny and like, how silly is that? But and maybe it's because because like time has gone so far away from that that it's even more offensive now. I mean, I definitely did not read this back in the day, but I can't imagine I would have responded to it especially well. Speaking of things I didn't respond to especially well, noting that the first two issues, Zero and One of Wild Thing, are both 17 pages, it's sort of frustrating that Zero had the sketchbook and One has a preview of Fantastic Five. It's so fucking annoying. It makes me think maybe Zero and One we're supposed to ship as like a giant sized first issue but I definitely think that the Ron Friends Sal Buscema art would have looked kind of rough next to the Ron Lim Al Williamson art you know they both have Tom Smith on colors but there is something so much better about the art on Crash Course than A Curse of the Wendigo that really made this first issue at least a lighter easier read for me yeah absolutely so the thing that I find, um, okay, well, Trash Bandit, there's, there's Trash Bandit, and there's, uh, Colin and Cameron, yikes, 
Uh, so this isn't like Larry Hama's worth, worst story ever or anything. And you know what? As a matter of fact, if it weren't exactly fucking J2 and Spider-Girl, it wouldn't be so tough. But this does sort of read like the X-Men Kids Club version of this story in some ways. It has some weird, uh, just kind of like rote beats. And I just don't know how these books found so much room for so much classism. Well, you know, and in this case, the the classism is just really awkward. The idea that you're supposed to get is that these rich people who are absolutely horrible are not having nearly as good a life as Rena is, whose parents are poor, although Electra being poor. But, you know, her parents love her so much and Cameron's parents try to negotiate her ransom, which is a really funny beat. Just none of it reflects an experience that kids had. The idea that the dude has this wretched girl girlfriend who is physically violent towards Rena and yet somehow Rena still likes him even though he barely admonishes the girlfriend even though they're both super rich and don't include her in anything just it's kind of nonsense um I mean the seeing Rena as just like this kind of put upon character who despite that has this amazing family again like I like her I like Rena she's a great character she's especially great when she's wild thing that this is how we get these sort of beats for her where we understand that she's got this great family and no just just could just have been a little bit better if i had any other because i mean you said all of my my feels on this issue if i had any other note i just think that maybe tom smith could have colored cameron slightly different the yellow of her hair is almost identical to the yellow of her shirt yeah. is almost identical to the yellow of rena's costume so there's points where it just sort of looks like some kind of twinkie school bus is coming for the reader and that gets a little dense to look at what did not get to be too much to look at was so I don't know what sort of Nico loves overroided muscle gods thing I prayed to that the second issue of this book has so many big juicy men just for me I guess I can share them with you but I you know the first issue is so light on everything but Rena's school experience that when the second issue is all about how she can't stop playing video games around her mom I guess the second one was probably the weakest. Uh, maybe the Sentinel one, but this one's up there. I think I like the Sentinel one a little more because it made me think about stuff. This is, you know, I, I, mean, I think it's really funny. The Landau Luckman and Lake ATM and the first of the many gigantic men in this issue that show up to use the ATM to track Electro when she just walked away in the mall. I don't know. The idea that Electra just walks into this gym full of ripped shirtless men and and there's a there's a vibe in this whole thing with Electra and these guys. I'm here for it. It's hilarious. It's complete nonsense. But again, like Electra, despite seeming semi-retired, still top of her game. Nobody fucks with her. Rena is missing all of this because she's playing a virtual headset, um, which she has hacked so that the main character looks like her. Sure, okay. And then just somehow the action of the story, some dude from the hand shows up, and then Rena somehow just ends up fighting this guy basically because the virtual reality machine prompts her to in some way it's all nonsense but i don't know i just like them all it's just funny and fun to watch again i was saying earlier that tom defalco talked about how j2 was his kid's book and it's very immature and doesn't work in a lot of ways it's not good for kids to read i think 
think is the problem. This is like, you know, if a kid read this, it's just going to be funny and fun and they're going to have a great character to follow. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot less harmful to this, whereas J2 had a lot more pseudo-sexual stuff. Rena just has a lot more of Larry Hama's shrug. It's silly. Yeah. Which I appreciate because this is Larry Hama. It's a different writer and, you know, this Sam guy is so fucking huge and gorgeous. And then this Kurayama guy, also fucking huge and gorgeous. I love what looks like the Buster Blader just being in the middle of one of the video game panels because, yeah, I would believe that she's also playing the Final Fantasy remake right now. But because it's, you know, still not done coming out in the never here future. But one of the things that is perhaps dumb for me in that story is there just wasn't room for Cameron and Colin. They just didn't need to be there. Didn't need to be there. It wasn't really necessary. It's so tough because I don't know who knew what when in terms of like, did they know they were only going to have five issues and they would definitely not get any more of this? Or were they thinking this could be the next Spider-Girl? We could have a hundred issues or like they didn't know they're going to have a hundred this could be the next Spider Girl. This could go on for a while. We have some room, so let's take some time and tell some fun, stupid stories. This is only a disappointing story for me because we have so little time. And using this as plot development or character development for Arena is acceptable to me. Funny and fun. I do move a little forward in my understanding of her, but it is really dumb and silly. And even for a kid's book, there was more we could have gotten considering the limited time that we have her. I agree because I'm sort of surprised that they didn't try to make like an MC2 featuring Spider-Girl kind of centralized title. Yeah. And that is sort of what we see with J2 becoming the backup story in Wild Thing. I have to stress that part of me is genuinely like, yeah, fucking wail on each other. Show him that you can handle it. Like part of me has some overcome your bullies on somebody who is just as strong as you. Like he's not going to hurt his dad. So they can sort of wail on each other in a way that is healing for both of them and yeah there's definitely a hot sexual element to it for me but like at the same time it is fucking disturbing to see Kane essentially curb stomping his son yeah I'm leaning way more towards the other one I I mean like if I want to just like not be angry and find humor in it it's definitely there Juggernaut's always a good time he is fucking huge and that's always great there was absolutely a way to figure this out and have a story where these two guys are you know father and son are having this weird bonding moment that involves punching each other because they are both invulnerable but it is a story that requires an incredibly delicate hand to not just be a scene of parent on child domestic violence that is simply at the end shrugged off which is what this is and you know without getting too far ahead of it the j2 backup stories kind of increasingly piss me off until they come to a a dramatic realization of how troubling they've been the whole time and we're definitely gonna address you know they're going to address that not even us like we've been addressing it and there's like a last moment that we'll get to but you know the more I think about the idea that a former supervillain is beating the shit out of his son to prove a point it just has some ugly ugly tones and it takes a lot of oh yeah the trappings of the superhero story 
story to get past it. Yeah, exactly. And it's just not something that any young person, especially that, I mean, the thing that just like chills my spine is thinking about a young person who is experiencing domestic violence in the home reading this. And I, I can't even start to enumerate and catalog the emotions that something like that would bring up. It, it sucks, man. It's just a bummer. It, terrible idea. And I, again, an editor should have caught it and said, absolutely not. Ironically, it was written by the editor. <laughs> but, you know, from one story that's deeply troubling to a story that just sort of lacked logic, I guess. Wild Thing number three, I don't know what to say here. I love the cover to Wild Thing number three and wish it wasn't marred by that horrible <laughs> big Julie image on the bottom because it's such a great parallel to the first one. Yeah. So we get this end media red storytelling and like principal hot muscles over fucking here. Every guy in this book is fucking like Larry Hama hot, which is like every guy is this super jacked, very hyper powerful, vaguely Asian influenced strong guy. And I'm so here for it. But there is an extraordinary number of these sex machines just running around. I almost called her Laura just running around arena's life. We all got to move to Upper Saddle Ridge, New Jersey, apparently. Evidently, because Jubilee is just going to show up and be like, hey guys, I've been wearing the same outfit since I'm 16. Your principal is a robot and LOL? Fix it. I just don't even understand. It's just the Dragon King story again. Yeah. She's doing after school stuff with Cameron. Their principal shows up, leaves. A robot shows up that it turns out is a sentinel. The sentinel keeps trying to kill them. They obviously deal with it because it's a comic book. And then Jubilee shows up and explains that the principal is a sleeper sentinel that they are now going to just put his face back on because his face came off and reset him. And he will no longer remember that he is a sentinel. That's nonsense. And no, that's how that's how they defeat Karima at the end of Inferno. Spoilers. <laughs> I would almost love that more for Inferno. Yeah, it's funny. The whole thing I was like, I want to take this and like start pulling from it and somehow apply it to the age of Krakoa and like their problem with machines right now. Something about this just like got me jazzed. But it's ridiculous. Again, it's just it's fun and funny and so stupid. It's not even so stupid that it works. It's just so stupid. I still love reading it. I have fun with every one of these issues. Again, I just think this is such a good character baseline that we could have done more and less, more interesting stuff and less stupid, funny stuff with her. Because she does provide something of like an animated series, Saturday morning cartoon silliness yeah. that we could have done almost the same thing without because we get way too much of the fucking silly, stupid with J2. I can't even say how angry I am that Big Julie returns and now he has essentially the same gun that Switcherdoodle had or whatever where he's like, now I'm muscular and you're a skinny bitch. And J this time he just turns J2 into a gorilla. I... <laughs> I don't. It's nonsense. No it's a waste of time. There's, It's just a waste of page space. And it's unfortunate because we've got this great character that we could have developed more in Rena, And instead, we're taking time to do a terrible J2 story. The one thing I will say is that the lesson here is that he just sort of perseveres. In Anex 3 and J2-3, he ran away out of fear. In the story against Switchy Dickface, he had Miller help him out clever the guy. Here, he just doesn't give up. So 
if I like one thing about this story, it shows that there are other ways in which Zane is unstoppable. Yeah, sure. I mean, like if I felt like that could be something to build on for another series or more appearances in another title, sure. However, the absolute worst moment of art in the entire, oh my God, that last page, yeah. the panels of J2 transformed back into a person and then little Zane with little Talia, it's really, it does not feel like it is the kind of art that this line needed. The line needed a little bit more attention to detail. You're starting to come out against ultimate books. You're starting to come out against, you know, Vertigo doing its Vertigo Visions titles. You're seeing really cutting edge digital art starting to emerge. This feels a little to what we could get done for our budget in a way that probably turned some readers off. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Speaking though of things that should have turned readers on, I think Wolverine number f- Wolverine number four, Jesus Christ. I think Wild Thing number four, co-starring Wolverine, the relay. Look, when they howl at the moon together, it's the dumbest thing but he looks so big and hot i don't care and she's so cool and she loves her daddy so much i would love her daddy that much too and like they fight a fucking ngari together this is the sort of issue i would have written myself into as a kid right this it's so good and it actually read really well yeah again this has the stuff that we really love about rena you know she has a really great family her dad really loves her he's not worried about her being a superhero he's training her he's showing her how to do it and he's showing her how to be the daughter of wolverine and how to experience the emotions that you do with a beast inside you the idea that he has embraced these things in this universe and isn't constantly at war with them and worried about what they're going to do to those around him and his descendants it's just nice to see him happy happy with a kid that he has taken care of has not failed and that she has grown up to be this fun person and then when you put that into a story that it kind of seems like more than luck through anything else just isn't as stupid and doesn't have any like glaring plot holes or just like this makes no sense no nonsense parts to it it's just a really straightforward they fight and then cry demon it's great it, this is this is rena at her best this is why we love her this is what makes me want more of her and it's exciting that i keep thinking she's laura yeah like that's such a good feeling yeah the overlaps are really interesting because she does feel like who laura could have been had she had wolverine in her life the whole time and had wolverine wanted to be a father these are beats that i would really love somebody to reflect on in this current age i think we got so excited to see all of the wolverines together at the end of the uh 10 lives and x deaths of wolverine series it's really left a taste in our mouths for wanting to see Wolverine the family man we've got a lot of that here and this feels like a recognizable Wolverine this is something that people could look at and they could look at Rena as sort of a, a different version a reflection of Laura and you can see a lot here that could be brought into the 616 in a way that is positive and sweet and would do a lot for both characters what did absolutely nothing for me <laughs> and I am like beyond angry about it friend zone this story is you know it's so awful when a guy is like but I'm such a nice guy and I am so hot you would all be so lucky to have sex with me it's just gross like it's not attractive to to read in the 
first place. But beyond that, that's one of the final entries of J2 as a solo fucking hero. He basically walks around saying, my dick's too big for anyone to love me. And it just doesn't work for me. It feels like a very sad ending to a character I had really great memories of, and it bums me out. Yep, you know, I think it's super sweet that Blue Streak has a crush on him. I think it's a total bummer. This feels like there should have been more. We're not going to get any more, and that's incredibly disappointing. This feels like more. It's even got a the end for now thing. I would have loved to have seen this develop. She would have been a great character for him to realize, oh, a girl who might seem weird to you, but just thinks you're absolutely amazing and wants to hang out with you and likes the stuff that you like is so much better than pining after just what I think is the hottest girl in school. What a good lesson for a kid that age to learn. And we are like at the first act of the story that where he learns that lesson, but this is it. And I'm sure we're even supposed to go like, oh, hopefully Blue Streak gets her man, but I don't want her to. I want her to get someone better. She's clearly willing to invest emotionally in a relationship with a man who she is willing to take on his flaws and his faults and love him through those. And here's a guy who just can't stop focusing on what he wants because he wants it. It's really disappointing that this is the lesson that is sort of one of the final moments for J2. Yes, it is. And speaking of sort of like, is that really the final moment we're going out on? I have no problem with the final story for Rena. It's just that she fights a giant, vaguely Ultron-ish robot out of nowhere. Like, I do really want to like it. But out of nowhere, she becomes secondary to her human sidekicks for like half the issue. And it's this Ultron-looking motherfucker. And then it's a little robot guy in a robot suit. And I think it's meant to be like sort of what Jason Aaron was trying to do with Gore, where it could have been any monster from any world but look how it happened but the fact that this guy is so forgettable it makes the final issue forgettable because he doesn't become a what could have happened this is a frustrating end despite being a perfectly fine issue yeah it's a good rena story again they're all good rena stories it's just how little time we have with her how that time is used and the frustration of knowing that this is in fact it it's a perfectly fine story it just if we're not going to get any more this could have been much better utilized page space and speaking of page space my miller my enemy is such a weird final story but in a lot of ways it's a lot like the final story that wild thing had just a giant inexplicable thing that i clearly thought we were sort of past but i guess not we're just you know we're not done with these sort of oh we're just gonna rehash classic marvel stories great giant robot alien we're gonna just go back to the weird testosterone bullying stuff Okay, I loved getting to see Juggernaut's history, but that the final pages are basically his mom being like, Zane, Kane, are the two of you really going to root for bullying? Like, what we said this whole time was the problem? It feels so dumb. Like, they just caught on that bullying is a problem. Yeah, after having a dad beat up his son. I think that, for the most part, Wild Thing, despite all of its flaws, maybe gets one of my best scores. I think I gave it a B or a B plus. I give it a B plus. Yeah, it's got some mistakes. 
mistakes. It's got some dumb stuff. The J2 stuff doesn't always work. But Rena is amazing. She's a fantastic character. You do see Laura in her. You see our Logan in this Logan. You see things about him that would feel very authentic were they reflected and brought to the front in 616. And we've been very engaged with Wolverine family stuff lately. And to see this, again, one of the reasons we took on this project was sort of not just to look at what might have been, but what the essentials are of characters and pieces of the Marvel Universe that when you spin it off or look at a new version of it, what are the essential things that you want to pull in and make sure that a reader knows? A lot of times I think they the authors miss the mark on what we should be taking from characters or they don't really get the time to give us the full essence or how that essence has changed in a different context. It's just a little muddied. But Logan, in all of the stories that he's been in and Rena are two that really shine through as if you are going to tell a Logan family story, this is the man that he is. And if you are going to have a true daughter of Wolverine that was raised by Wolverine as a loving father in a stable home, this is how she would be. They nailed that. I could not agree more. I feel so much that they found the spirit of what made that character work, Wolverine, in the same way they found the spirit of what mostly makes Peter Parker work, perhaps that we're a little bit more muty sides of things means that we really get the Rena stuff. But clearly, a number of people really got the Mayday stuff that Spider-Girl is going to continue on past all of these other titles. Now, our next episode sees us covering Spider-Girl 17 through 27, as well as the Wizard One Half issue, and the final three-issue, two-miniseries kind of combo that ends, essentially, MC2 being a line. We're going to take a look at the Buzz 1 through 3, as well as Dark Devil 1 through 3. If I have any hope for continuing to read this, it's that by limiting the number of titles, that one title has a stronger identity, and we can kind of follow that narrative a bit more. How about you? I think you nailed it. I'm hoping the character work that we've done with Mayday, with more time to focus on just that, we'll see a sort of expanded vision of who she is. We might get sort of less extreme character beats from everybody else and settle into a nice rhythm of story that allows everybody to breathe and be recognizable, enjoyable characters. And until next time, when we find those enjoyable characters, <laughs> where can everybody find you online? You guys find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And every week talking about comic books on X's for Podcast. You guys can find me over on X's for Podcast as well. And also on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And don't forget, you can check out my original work in the upcoming Young Men in Love special, which you can order through Diamond Comics or your local comic shop. It features amazing talents like Cena Grace, Joe Glass, Terry Bloss, Anthony Oliveira, and more. So definitely do check that out. And until next time, guys, keep your Marvel Universes too. Bye.